I'm not a highly emotional person, but this is an above average emotional day for me. You know, I'm 42 years old. My mother is 75. And she, is there anyone here that was a grandparent by the time you turned 50? Anyone here was a grandparent by age 50? I see some hands. My mother has wanted to be a grandparent since she was 50. But three hours ago today, she became a grandparent. And I became an uncle. And uh, Nicholas, excuse me, Nathan Alexander Pruitt was born into the world this morning in Illinois. Isn't that beautiful? So I dedicate this message to him as the first gift I can give to my one and only nephew. I don't think he'll understand it for quite some time. Also, I'm pleased because I am in a church full of parents. I don't see the young people here as much as I thought I might see them. I'm speaking of the young people ages like 15 to 25 or 30 or 35. I guess they're getting older now, <laughs> some of them. But I have had an opportunity to work with young people whose parents attend this church since 1997. And uh, that is just, to me, an evidence that God has put a heavy responsibility on this congregation. Or let me say that plainly, how I understand it. If this church never did one smidgen of outreach, never did anything at all to help the community, but it cultivated Miss Laura Calkins into a missionary-minded girl who would spend her life doing mission work in Southeast Asia, then this church has had a tremendous impact on the planet. Yes. Amen. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do outreach. I think it's hard to cultivate young people into mission-minded young people if you're not doing something. Yes. And I suppose that you've done something here that has been helpful to them. But I just want to thank the parents in this church who have done what they could to raise children for the Lord. I don't suppose that every parent who has tried has been at this point successful. Because I suppose Adam and Eve tried and it didn't go well for Cain. But still, it's a beautiful thing, those who try, yes. to do what you can to help young people grow up to know the Lord and to be in his service. Yes. None of these things that I'm saying are highly relevant to the message, but they're relevant to the church, and that's why I wanted to say them first. I have three messages, but I won't go over time. I will share them all. I mean, not just three today. I mean, I have three for this hour. Uh, a short one, a very short one, and then a short one. <laughs> and I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude. This is for the first one. Jude. Looking at verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. So there's a sad thought at the end of the verse that we just read, and that is the people that were saved out of Egypt, 
That very same class of people, what happened to them? The same class of people that were saved were destroyed. And thinking about that is a solemn thought. It should be solemn for you. It's solemn for me. I want us to notice the first half of the verse. When Jude says, I will put you in remembrance, though you once knew this. There is a mentality towards religion that leads to spiritual ignorance. Let me complain about it for just a moment. It shouldn't be in a Christian school that Bible class is the easiest class. It shouldn't be that Bible is something that you can get an A in without application and homework and deep consideration. It shouldn't be so that you can come to church and listen to Sabbath school and church week after week and not be challenged with biblical insights and knowledge that are beyond what you've understood before. It's also true, as it says in verse 5, that some things that we've heard before, we need to hear them again. You know that Jesus is coming back soon. You knew that even before you were forwarded that YouTube video 20 times in the last week and a half about the Pope speaking to the evangelicals. And if that wasn't forwarded to you 20 times, at least you heard it once. And if it hasn't come to you even once, then you can ask about it at Potluck, and whoever's near you will know what I'm talking about. But it's not because of that video that you knew that Jesus was coming back. You knew that before. It's when you think about the fact that he's coming back that's relevant to the decisions you make. When I think of decisions, I'll give you a practical type. When you decide to move and go live somewhere else for your retirement home, if you think about the fact that Jesus is coming back soon, then you would be thinking, I hope, about where could you live where you could have an impact and help people be ready. But if you're not thinking about that, you might think, and this isn't a bad thought, it's just a deficient thought. But you might be thinking, where could you have the most social enjoyment and be closest to family? Which might, because of the way statistics work, might be the same place where there are far too many Adventists per capita. Let me even explain that to you just for a minute. You know, India is a big nation. In terms of size, it's large, but I mean in terms of population, it's very large. Uh, We have an insert in our bulletin that says that uh, by numbers, China is the church's number one mission field. Well, okay, but India is too. In India, in Andhra Pradesh, there are almost 700,000 Seventh-day Adventists. That is, the ratio of Adventists to the general population there is better than in many parts of the United States. 
In northern India, where more than half of the people of India live, it is extremely different. A ratio that is by more than a magnitude worse than in Andhra Pradesh. So, if you were going to go on a mission trip to India to reach people, statistically, I would hope you wouldn't go to Andhra Pradesh. But statistically, I expect you probably did. Does it make sense to anyone what I'm trying to say? And I'm not even talking about missions. But I'm saying there are things that we know that we need to hear about more often. Things that when we hear about them, they make a difference in how we think. Turn back to 2 Peter. That's back like just three or four pages for you. 2 Peter, chapter 1. Look at verse 12. Wherefore, I will not be negligent, 2 Peter 1, verse 12. I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you, what's the verb? Though you know them. Peter, why are you going to tell me things I already know? Is it because I'm kind of shaky? It says, though you know them, and be, what's the word? established in the present truth. Why, Peter, are you going to tell me things I already know if in fact I know them very well? Verse 13. Yes, I think it is appropriate, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up, that is to get you moving, by putting you in remembrance. Let me say this another way. The truth affects you only when it has your attention. It's when you think about the truth that the truth has an impact on your life. It's when you're not thinking about the truth that the truth has little impact on your life. So what happens is when I think about Jesus and what he's done for me, that softens my heart. When I am not thinking about that, even though I still know it's true, somewhere in my mind it's there, when I'm not thinking about it, it has very little impact on me at all. At least not an impact for change. It may be that the cross can change me today, and because of what it does today, I can be a better person tomorrow. But if I don't consider or continue thinking about the cross, I will be on a downhill slant. That is, what the cross has done for me will begin to lose its effect on my life. It's by considering what Jesus has done that I'm, con- I'm kept fresh or soft. Yes. Yes. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. We're almost completely done with the first of the three messages. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand. It reminds me of what Peter said, but this is Paul speaking. 
Paul said, I preached the gospel to you at Corinth. So according to the verse, did they accept it in Corinth? They did. And how are they doing today? Are, are they standing in it? They are. And Paul says, I'm going to tell it to you again. Verse 2, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. To say that another way, it's true that the truth can set you free. It's true that truth sanctifies the soul. But it's not true that it does it automatically. It's not true that by knowing the truth that you're changed by the truth. Knowing the truth is when you learn it is when you're changed the most because you certainly are thinking about it when you're learning it. But once you learn it, you need to hear it again and again and again because it is the content of the truth that changes you. It's when you're thinking about it that it has an impact on your experience. This is why I became an enemy of television at 11 years of age to the chagrin of both of my parents. We had a television in our living room, which, like many modern homes, is part of our dining room. That is, one has tile and one has carpet, but there's no partition between them. You can picture that, can't you? It was that way that when you're eating at the dinner table, you can at the same time be watching the television. And what I learned as an 11-year-old and as a 12-year-old is that even though I had chosen for myself not to watch television, that if I was in the same room as the television, Mm -hmm. I would, in fact, watch it despite my very best choices. And that's when I irritated my parents. Because I said I would no longer come to meals unless the television was off. And I'm just trying to communicate something to the young people here. And that is that your parents are not a benchmark for your dedication to the Lord. They may be beyond you, but they're not a benchmark. Or let me say that another way. If I'm speaking to children, benchmark is not a good word to use. It it is possible for you to go beyond anyone you know, to go further than they have gone in terms of obedience and faithfulness to what God is asking. The promise of James 4 that says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, doesn't have limits. This is why Jesus is closer to John than he is to James and Peter. It's not because Jesus plays favorites. It's because John draws closer to Jesus. And if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. That you can get, you can draw as near as you will. The nearer that you draw, the nearer you will be. So this first message is a simple one. It is, give truth your attention. Don't just know it, but think about it. Block off time to not think about anything else. Or, if you can't stand that, share it with someone. 
Because when you share it, certainly it will have your attention. And in the process of sharing or thinking, the truth will have an impact on you that it cannot have any other way. So that leads me to the second thought, which is very short. In this part of Washington, there are very kind, secular people. Very loving, agnostics, atheists, and religiously ambivalent persons. Very many of them. Not in India. But in India, when I was there, there were very many super kind Hindus. It happened to my wife and I so many times that we're walking up a hill and nearly every third motorcycle that goes by stops and asks us if we need a drink or a ride. There are many secular people who are very sweet. And as a corollary to that, there are quite a number of Adventists who are obnoxious. Right? And even in this church, I can't say in this church, I need to say in this community, in the 45 mile radius around this church that makes up the area where you live, there are an above average number of ex-Adventists. Right? Yes. And I know some of them. I just want to say something to you about obnoxious Adventists and sweet atheists. I want to explain to you why this phenomenon exists. There are four reasons that come to mind. One of them is background. That is, if you are raised in a sweet home where there's lots of love and warmth, you can become a sweet person by the way you're raised, even if you do not hold on to your religious values. So that in an area where people were very Christian 70 years ago or 100 years ago, you can still today have quite a collection of sweet, polite grandchildren who have no religious values. And one of the reasons they're so sweet is because of their grandparents. That's one reason you have sweet atheists. Another reason is because of discipline. Discipline produces higher quality people. It even produces nicer people. People who receive proper discipline growing up end up being nicer people. And people who receive poor discipline end up becoming obnoxious people. That's true whether you're an atheist or an Adventist. It's true both times. So discipline is one reason that you have very kind, secular people. Many of them were raised with some discipline. It's not the only reason, and some of them that are nice were raised with no discipline at all. There is another reason, and that is because of intelligence and culture. It makes sense to be a nice person. 
You have more friends when you're a nice person. You get better jobs when you're a nice person. You get promoted when you're a nice person. And people are not so hard on you when you're a nice person. Public elementary school makes some nice people because of the mean people who are there, right? You learn some things about it makes sense to be a nice person. So discipline and culture, and this is an above average, I don't know if that's true, I haven't been here long enough. It just seems to me like this would be an above average cultured place. But remember, I'm not comparing you to the rest of Washington, I'm comparing you to Arkansas where I come from. So it seems to me that this would be a cultured place. And culture makes nice people. There is another reason, and we will get back to the Bible in the third message. The devil has an interest in not showing off the bitterness of secular people. And I think you know this even from your personal experience in your own home, that there are many of you that are much sweeter abroad than you are inside the house. I'm not going to ask you to show your hands. But I think you know it's true. And if it's true for you, it's true for a lot of others too. But the devil doesn't have a real interest in showing off the bitterness of secular people. So when they're abroad, he lets them get away with their face a lot more than he does with some others. In other words, they look nicer than they are. Can you follow what I'm trying to say? Now let's talk about why there are obnoxious Adventists. One reason is background. If you are raised in a home with yelling and bitterness or with a lack of discipline or with angry people, or if you are abused or molested or maligned or otherwise hurt, that can put in you a root of bitterness that if it's not dealt with, it won't just die because you're an Adventist. It will still grow up and can be quite defiling. It can create a lot of mess. Yeah. And it is because of discipline. If you are a, a parent who breaks the will of your children or who is angry in the process of discipline, you can create as much bitterness as you could have created by no discipline at all. Discipline makes obnoxiously hurt people when it is angry or when it is neglected. The only discipline that is valuable is the kind that is calm, cool, firm, and predictable. Another reason that there are obnoxious Adventists is because of a lack of intelligence and a lack of culture. I don't mean that Adventists are below average intelligent. I think that because we have an intellectual message, we tend to be above average intelligent. It's not that our message makes us intelligent, it's just that our message tends to attract people who are thinkers. If it attracted your great-grandparents, that may or may not have a big impact on you. But a lack of culture or a lack of intelligence can produce obnoxious people, and this is the way it works. 
If you have 20 Adventists in the church and only one of them is very obnoxious, that one person will be remembered better by youth than the other 19. So that it's not essential to have 20 obnoxious people to have the obnoxious effect. Do you follow what I'm trying to say? And there is a place, however loath you are to do it, for a church to discipline obnoxious members. There is a place for making a safe place for your young people. Churches don't like that because those people make a terrible stink when they're being disciplined. But that's not any good reason to avoid it. The other reason that there are obnoxious Seventh-day Adventists is because of the devil. Now, I don't know if you noticed those four lists that I gave, but they were exactly the same. The devil has an interest in showing off the bad nature of Seventh-day Adventists. He wants the worst in you to come out when others can see it. And because of the way he's thinking... He doesn't even care if it shows up day to day, but he certainly wants it to show up when you're in the neighborhood of youth. That is, when you see something going on that probably shouldn't, the devil would like to put in you that spirit that you show at home when no one's looking and bring it right up to create such a negative experience that in the course of eight or ten years, it will produce an ex-Adventist. What I'm hoping you'll gather is a number of things from this sermon. This middle part is longer than I anticipated it being. But what I want you to gain from it, first of all, is you should not be so easy to manipulate. You shouldn't leave Adventism because you meet a bad Adventist. And you should not be attracted to secularism because you meet a nice secular person. If, you, if you're thinking that way, you make it very easy for the devil to manipulate you. And why would you make it easy for him to do that? The second thought is you ought to just make sure that you don't cooperate with what the devil's doing. Now I want to come to the third message, which is also short, but it's the one that the message is named after. It's called Christ's Unknown Righteousness. The Unknown Righteousness of Jesus Turn your Bibles to Romans 10. Romans chapter 10. We're looking at verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. That tells me that if you could see Paul in the bedroom praying, and if you could hear the thoughts that were on his heart, you would see him praying for lost people. When we have prayer requests at church, um, no, I'm not even going to say that. I'm just going to say that you ought to pray for lost people. Verse 2, For I bear them record, that is, the Jews, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Do you know that the Jews were ignorant of Christ's righteousness? 
But they were not ignorant of the idea of righteousness. They, in fact, wanted to be righteous. They were pushing for righteousness. They were working hard for righteousness. It was on their mind to be righteous. I want to review with you something we said last night, which isn't review for two-thirds of you because you weren't here. We talked about why Jesus could die in our place. You know, the just for the unjust. Why is it that Jesus' death could count for me? Because to many people today, that doesn't seem fair. They don't see any justice in it. That might look generous, but it doesn't look fair. And I tried to explain something yesterday about it, last night. That is, God created us. Because he created us, he owns us. If I have a hammer and I throw it through this mother's room window, that's not what the hammer was for. It could do that, but that's not what it's for. I'm trying to illustrate something about you. God made you, and when he made you, he made you for something. You have some freedom to do what you will with yourself. You have freedom to choose where you go and what you do. But if you throw yourself through a mother's room window, that isn't your calling. Does anyone understand what I'm trying to say by this metaphor? What I'm trying to say is that God owns me, and he has a right to tell me where to go. In fact, what I owe him is a lifetime of obedience. If I were to live forever, I even owe him a forever lifetime of obedience. That's what I owe him. Angels owe God as much obedience as I do. So, an angel... If he sins, say Lucifer, who did sin, when he sins, he now has defaulted on what he owes his creator. Do you know Lucifer has no way to pay that back? Because all Lucifer has is a whole lifetime. And what does he already owe God? He owes him his entire life. If you were to live for God the rest of your life and never sin again, it's not like God owes you something. Don't you owe God your entire life? If a man today does wrongly and steals something, he's caught a month from now and taken to court, does, will that judge listen if the man says, Your Honor, I haven't stolen anything now for six weeks, so I'm not guilty. Does obedience atone for disobedience? It never could. So we owe God our life. Angels owe God a life. But the Lord Jesus doesn't owe God a life. He's not obligated by creation. So when Jesus serves the Father... It is the Father's honor and glory to, to pay Jesus. That is, Jesus earns things when he works. 
That idea is biblical. Romans 4 describes it. It says, the man who works, he earns wages. And when Jesus works, he earns wages. But you know, Jesus doesn't need them. What he earned is what he gives to us. And because he, had, because he worked an entire life of righteousness that he didn't even need, because he earned that righteousness, he has agreed to take our sins on himself and to give us his life of righteousness. That was an idea that Jews didn't comprehend. They wanted a righteousness that they would be responsible for somehow. Now, I say that we're ignorant of Christ's righteousness, and I'm nearly done even with the third message, but I want you to understand something about it. Christ's righteousness changes us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You probably don't remember it, but what we read already in Romans 10 is that because they were ignorant of God's righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Do you know God's righteousness requires submission? And it does. Are you in 1 Corinthians 2? Last night we were in 1 Corinthians 1 for quite a while. We're starting now in verse 5, 2 verse 5. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of man or men, but in the power of God. In chapter 1 we observed that the, Paul said he didn't want to use the wisdom of men to preach the cross. He said if he would preach the gospel with the wisdom of men, the cross would be neutralized. It would lose its power. He said that the world by wisdom didn't even know God. He said that the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. And now he's developing the same idea in chapter 2, verse 5. He says, your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men. I hope that you do not believe what you believe because you heard some gifted teacher say it. If your faith is standing in the wisdom of men, that won't do it. Verse 6, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world, that comes to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden, hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Listen carefully. Which none of the princes of the world knew. For if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Do you see in this verse that the Roman leaders and the Jews are the princes of the world spoken of in verse 8? And if they had known the righteousness of God, it would have changed their behavior. Do you see that in verse 8? If they had known the righteousness of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, I hope you can find the next passage. It's Micah chapter 6. Micah 6. It's just before Nahum. 
which is just after Jonah, which is just after Obadiah. This morning when I was looking for Jonah, I was looking at book names in the upper right-hand corner of my Bible, and I realized there's not a single page in my entire Bible that has the name Jonah there, because it doesn't start, it starts and finishes on the same two-page spread. So I'll never find Jonah that way. Are you in Micah 6? Yes. Micah 6 in verse 5. O my people, remember now what Balak the king of Moab consulted, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Suppose you want to know the righteousness of the Lord. Is there a story that God recommends to you for that? There is a story, and that would be the story that features two men, Balaam and Balak. Now, you remember the story, I think, that Balak was concerned, and he asked Balaam to come curse Israel. Balaam was concerned about money, and so he went to curse Israel. But when he got up there, God would not let him do that, probably as a mercy to all of us so we could learn the righteousness of the Lord. And so Balaam was not permitted to say what he desired to say. And if you go back in your own time this afternoon or tomorrow and read what Balaam said, speaking of Israel, when he was looking at them, he said, the shout of a king is among them. Now, you know, this is long before Israel had a king. Who was their king? That was the Lord Jesus the king of Israel. And then Balaam said about them, I have not beheld iniquity in Israel. Now, when you read that story, you're going to have to blink and then go back and read what's before and after it because Israel has not become a perfect people. It is soon after that they get involved with the prostitutes that are sent by Balak at Balaam's suggestion. And it's just before that, just a few chapters before that, that they're ready to kill Moses and Aaron. And a few chapters before that, they're also ready to kill Moses and Aaron. And a few chapters before that, they're also ready to kill Moses and Aaron. And I'm not kidding. That's in chapters 14, 16, and 20. It's not like that these people have become very pure. If you want to know something about the righteousness of the Lord, you'll recognize it's not your own. It is his. And because of that, when the nation was doing what it could to put away sin, God looked at the nation and counted it righteousness, though righteous, though it was Jesus. What did I say? I don't know what I said, but Jesus certainly counted that nation as righteous, though it wasn't pure. I'm trying to say something to you about you. I don't mean that Jesus overlooks sin. But I mean that when you are practicing Christianity daily and putting away your sins, when you're confessing your sins, that he is not only faithful, but he is just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That he, in fact, credits a perfectly holy life to you that wasn't yours, that of Jesus.
And because that is counted to you, you are able to pray. You're able to have the presence of God. You can be helped as you read the Bible. You can, in fact, be a Christian. You are in Christ. There is an ignorance of Christ's righteousness that is common today. There are people that know that Jesus died for their sins, but they don't understand the ramifications. That means they don't know what it means for them personally. They still think that they must have their own righteousness. I don't mean that they think that they can be good enough to go to heaven, because I don't think anyone hardly today in America, at least right here, thinks that way. But there is a pitiful ignorance of the perfect righteousness of Jesus, so much so that in the wisdom of men, there are people today, educated men, who are becoming popular wherever they go, (coughs) preaching an idea that in the judgment, Christ's righteousness does not count in place of ours. I'm thinking of Tim Jennings and Herb Montgomery and Dr. and Drs. Cole and Graham Maxwell, men I mentioned last night, and some others that I hope won't be like that way in the future. Christ's righteousness is a perfect righteousness that cannot be defiled by your sin. It works this way in the Daniel 9, it says that he would bring in everlasting righteousness. You can separate yourself from it, but you can't mess it up. It stays pure. And whenever, by confession of sin, you bring yourself back into line with God, that is, if you're choosing to live by his word, that's what faith is, it's that simple. When you live by the word of God, that righteousness is counted to you again, a perfect, everlasting righteousness our only good hope. If, if I haven't stopped you, it's because I'm just afraid someone isn't getting it. But I'm going to stop anyway, because you have a chance to come back at 4.30. The first thought was that truth affects you when you think about it. The second thought was that sweet atheists prove nothing. And the third thought is that there is a righteousness pure and everlasting that we can't defile, but we can avail ourselves of it by taking God at his word. Thank you, Lord. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.